0: Hey, friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista, and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com, and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey, friends. Welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey, friends. Today I'm chatting with Brendan Adams, founder of Samia, which is a coffee importing company based in Canada. I first learned about Samia through their Instagram account, and what prompted me to ask Brendan on the show was a particular post he made. He talked about how specialty coffee defines itself through paying higher prices, but how paying higher prices for coffee should really be the starting point, not the only defining attribute of specialty coffee. He then likened the idea that we can throw money at a problem and sort of forget about it to trickle down economics and neoliberalism, which we explore in this episode. If you can't tell already, this episode is going to be chewy. We're going to talk about big ideas. It does start off slow before it picks up the pace. But Brendan talks about how neoliberalism affects the way we view coffee and why traditional economic models have largely failed in correcting or reforming exploitative systems. In this episode, we reference a previous podcast conversation with Ted Fisher, who wrote a book about value in coffee, so you might want to check that one out before listening to this episode. I saw these two episodes as being complementary to one another. I even thought about them as being a pair in certain ways, but it's not totally necessary. Just know that we will talk about Ted's work, and both episodes share similar themes. Here's Brendan. Brendan, I was hoping you can start by introducing yourself.
1: Yeah, my name is Brendan Adams, and I'm the founder of Samia Coffee, which is an importation and advocacy company based in Montreal in Canada.
0: I am going to start where I start with all of these interviews, asking you some fundamental questions about how you got into coffee. But... We're going to hit some really hard topics in this episode. We're going to talk about trickle down economics. We're going to talk about neoliberalism in specialty coffee and how the falsehood that we're doing something better in specialty coffee by pay- paying producers more money is just symptomatic of these like Reaganist economic principles. A lot of big stuff is going to happen, but we're going we're gonna to start in the shallow end first and kind of kind of swim our way into deeper waters. So <laughs> I, I just wanted to prime people for what they're about to hear. But let's start with how you got into coffee. Did you grow up with coffee in your life?
1: Yeah, I think that coffee was in my life, but it wasn't a big part of my life. You know, like everybody in my family drank a lot of coffee at home. But I didn't start in coffee until I was in my early 20s when I lived in Vancouver and had my first job as a barista.
0: When did you move from barista work, which is probably where a lot of listeners start, into maybe like the back end of things? Like, did you get into roasting or how'd you get into green coffee? Like, how'd you make that jump from barista to the next stage in your life?
1: Yeah, I think that it was a long process. So I had my first job about 15 years ago. And did that sort of just temporarily without any thinking about it being a long-term pursuit for me. And then after moving to Montreal to continue my studies, I ended up working again as a barista in one of the first specialty cafes in the city, who was also a roaster, and then quickly had the opportunity to begin roasting. And then once I was roasting there, which was about 10 years ago that I started that, that's where I sort of started to see the possibilities of what I could do long-term through coffee, given the opportunity.
0: Why did you start Samia? Why did you decide that that was the avenue you wanted to pursue, like a more in-depth coffee career?
1: Yeah, I think for a variety of reasons, I think with Samia, the idea came from years of working and, you know, as I continue to learn, I think that's the thing that's everybody and Especially, can agree is that coffee is a great place to learn and to find new things all the time. And I think that as I continued in my journey from roasting to begin to start of green buying for roastery, starting to connect more closely with smallholders, specifically smallholders in the global south, and start to really hear the challenges that were happening, and then start to see those gaps in specialty coffee buying. Being at cupping tables at origin and watching as decisions got made, and sort of scratching my head about like well, what about all of these people that aren't on the table or one of the people who are on the table but aren't making it? And seeing these ways in which the more that I traveled, the more that I could see that specialty had some good ideas behind it, but there was just a huge set of holes in every different direction. And I sort of had this moment where I was like, I can either just walk away or I can I can try to commit to making this the thing that i wanted it to be when i had that original sort of inclination and belief that you know this fragment of a idea of like what we could do to create almost like a new world around this you know it's been really challenging for sure i mean we launched our business right before covid that was a whole thing to deal with when you land a container of coffee and then a global pandemic strikes you know and you've never sold coffee really before to anybody you know but we we persevered through all that stuff and i think that you know, we're continuing to learn and seeing now. We're starting to see the fruits of the possibility of creating that new world, you know, of seeing that, like we say, I could sit there and say with specialty coffee that there's so many problems, like screw this industry. You know, I've heard that from a lot of like, oh, it's just so it's so problematic. It's so fraught with issues. But I step back and I go, like, what in this world isn't, you know? And I think what we can do is we can approach it and say, it's awful, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere else. Or we can bring our full energy to say, what is one thing Two things, three things that I can address as an individual with agency in this world and with privilege and try to make that different, not because we're deciding, but like in collaboration and connection with the people who need something to be different for them.
0: Let's break down some of those ideas that you introduced. So, One of the things that I'm interested in exploring a little bit more and unpacking a little bit more is your role as an importer. Because for me, as a person who's worked mostly the front of house of coffee in retail, as a barista, as a coffee trainer, kind of never on the back end, that to me has felt the most mysterious is maybe the nice way to say it, but very, very non-transparent part of coffee. How does coffee move from where it's grown to roasters? And how are those decisions made? Um so like how do you kind of explain to people what what it is you do? Because I think you can say okay, you're an importer, you bring coffee from one place to another, but there's really a lot more to it than that and I think I would imagine part of what you wanted to do was to do importing differently or to break some of the conventions that you were seeing other people do that you were like wait we don't have to do it this way
1: yeah 100 like i think that in some ways importer is like a dirty word you know right I yeah it is that, like, it
0: totally is like even me saying it out loud i was like oh i don't like this word but like why
1: it makes sense i think in some ways right like there's a lot of different reasons why i guess but like fundamentally, where does an Im- importer emerge from an importer emerges from a commodity chain right Mm-hmm. That's what you, why you exist. It's like you existed because you were able to trade, right? You were able to play with the market, buy when the market's low, organize the logistics and sell when the market's high on the other side, right? And, that can, and that's the original basis of the commodity market in Brazil, for example. You know, when you go back and see like when it's stabilized so that you could manage these massive price spikes in coffee supply. Importers were a key part of that because they were just benefiting from like trade games, right? And that still is a big part of, of the industry. I think for us, like I said to you before, like importing for us, like we physically move coffee from, from country to country. But beyond that, I don't view us as, as importers at all. And I think there's a lot of different reasons why, because I think that the way that we work um, requires way more emotional labor than the average importer is willing to put into, because that's fundamentally a transactional basis, you know? The traditional, like simple breakdown of like, even in specialty importing would be you have fundamentally like an exporting agency and a product producing country and an importing agency likely based in Europe or North America, maybe in Asia. And these two entities do business together. This exporter will typically run a buying point. That buying point will be analyzing samples and cupping them, connecting with producers and then sharing those samples with with the importers who then typically in specialty seek the highest quality that they can get from that. And maybe they connect with those producers that produce the highest quality. Maybe they don't. At the end of the day, quality coffees are purchased at a price decided between the exporter and the importer. The smallholder or the producer who brings the coffee to that exporter gets told what their price is. The coffee gets brought to North America, Europe, Asia, sold to the roaster. That's kind of it. you know. I think that's it's very, right. as we say, transactional. I think that there is in a specialty importing scenario where like higher prices are paid and exporters do, you know, are working closely with people that can yield some positive results. There are good specialty exporters and good specialty importers out there that succeed in in that model. I think with Samia, however, we have a lot of different ways that we're interested in working. And I think the number one thing starts from how does that producer get in the door?
0: I guess... I guess I should already allude to the fact that if we're listening to this episode, you've likely heard the episode that we had with Ted Fisher, who wrote a book about coffee. And he talked a little bit about market access for farmers. And one of the things that we really broke down is he introduced this map of a region in Guatemala in Huehuetenego. He marked a cup of excellence winner, and then he marked 10 different small holding farms around it. And the cup of excellence winner, on average, sold their coffee for $4 per pound, and all the small holders around were selling a commodity. But when Mm. those samples were cupped all together, cup of excellence winner plus all the small holder farms, the difference in quality was pretty much the same. It It was very similar. So market access is a big part of how someone gets higher prices. And we'll talk about what higher prices mean later and what 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 kind of signals we, we make with that in specialty coffee. But can you talk a little bit about what that means to get people in the door in specialty coffee? Because I don't think that that's something that gets talked about a lot when we talk about importing coffee.
1: No, I think it's completely overlooked. And I think exactly what Ted put, that's like such an amazing way to capture it. And the fact that he has that data for it is like basically one of the first inclinations I had with Samia around a cupping table in in Central America where we were sitting there cupping and being like, okay, so here's a day of cupping, 40, 40 cups that are on the table and everything that was 86 plus kind of already had a home or close to or had a potential for a home with a roaster. But then anything below that was just sort of like, where's that going now? It's just gone. And so that's one moment where you see a What was the difference between an 85 and an 86 in that moment? Was it a roast? Was it drying time? Was it, you know, in in the collection of the cherry was a little bit off? You know, a lot of things that led to a lot being completely removed from a table or rejected by a buyer that are really arbitrary. But then secondarily, beyond that, how did those coffees get on the table? And what about all the other people who weren't there? If there's 40 samples from 40 growers in a place that's almost all coffee growers, where's everybody else? Right. And so... I just kept thinking about this thing of like with specialty coffee, if we keep going to the same sources and fighting over the same coffees, because those people have name recognition and have that access, it's great if they have that. But if everybody wants that coffee so badly that there's none available and they're unwilling to look to their neighbor, what are we really achieving? You know, what is really, we're leaving so much on the table in terms of what the actual impact can be done on a community level, you know? And so from that, like what Ted wrote is exactly what our response to that was then. Okay. So if we know the cup of excellence producer can be a cup of excellence producer, it likely is the case that their whole community can be too. So how do we work with that community? You know, And so in some cases we start with people who aren't cup of excellence winners, You know, but taking our Guatemala example is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Metacas, Gwent, where we work, 90 to 95% of the entire community around that city in Jalapa are coffee growers. Traditional coffee growers, that's all they do. It's the only thing they grow. That's the only crop they have. Coffee is sold in cherry. That means that major buyers, specialty or commodity, come through the trucks and they buy cherries by the Quintal by 100 pounds at a price that is related roughly to the market price, but can be wildly deflated and can be obviously manipulated by little things like stepping on the scale when the cherries get there. You know,
0: hmm.
1: Who just won Cup of Excellence in Guatemala this year? A I don't know. Wet mill owned by grower in Mataca Squintla. So Mataca Squintla, that whole area has potential for that, right? Mm-hmm. But literally nobody there has any access whatsoever. There's not a cupping lab in Mataca Squintla. There's not a buying point in Mataca Squintla. You can sell to wet mills. You can sell to intermediaries. But in terms of like smallholder producers who have been working for generations to grow their own coffee and to sell it nobody has taken that initial step to work with them, right? So I think for us, there's two ways. I think that with developing access, we can either be connected with someone because the quality of the coffee was really good and that brings us to their community. And then we start working with their whole community, which was the case in Selguapa in Honduras. We connected with one producer there, Antonio Ramirez, who was one of the first growers in that area going back to the 80s. And he sold his coffee also only in cherry until that has become unsustainable for him. And he took those steps in like his 70s, basically, to start processing his coffee. And it was incredible. Tipica growing at like almost 1,800 meters in Honduras, which is almost unheard of nowadays. Mm -hmm. And then we commit to that community. We say, okay, well, we're buying everything now. Like, even if it's not perfect, we'll find some way to grow with that. And we'll see what happens.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But I wanted to really hone in on this idea of you buying all the coffee because that's something that happens i have to imagine that you've seen a lot where people will go to farms buy some of the coffee and leave maybe 80% still there or something like that if we're thinking about specialty coffee it's scored on a 0 to 100 like that's just where i'm kind of pulling that maybe that number out but what is that, what does that mean like like talk about why that's important like why is it important to go to a farm and say like we're going to buy all of this
1: Yeah, well, I think like going back to what we said before, where it was like, where was that sort of moment where I was like, what's the opportunity for Samia? That same thing of like, okay, so access is one thing. There's people on this table who aren't cupping really well, that aren't getting a buyer. And there's people who aren't even on this table. So how do we find those people, right? That's number one. Number two is like, once we find people, how do we make sure that we're supporting them to the maximum so that it makes an actual difference, you know? Because just like the Ted Fisher example of Cup of Excellence, if that Cup of Excellence grower continues to be the only person who get, who wins in that area, what does it mean for the community? So basically understanding that like once we've done that point where we find people who lack access, then the most important way that we can make a big impact in that community as quickly as possible, the fastest way there is to make sure that we buy all of it from everybody. So it can't just be Antonio Ramirez in Honduras. It has to be his whole family. And that grows now to be something like 14, 15 producers that are all Ramirez related people that live in that one town. And that means that all of these producers now have their own separate roaster client that comes through Samia and we're buying all of it. And the coffee that ends up being slightly lower, we create regional blends for, and then patch that through to the roasters as well. So that some roasters can have multiple levels of quality from the same producers. Maybe some just want the lower quality producing lower quality lot, because that's budget friendly for them. But all of the coffee then is bought at a price that far supersedes any local market that they would have been offered. And I think that that whole notion came as well from being that green buyer who's cupping the coffee and chasing the 87 point, 88 point, 89 point micro lot and realizing that even if I wanted to as a roaster, I'm unfortunately going to be stuck in a position where I can only buy five, 10 bags as a medium size micro roaster. You know. And that just sort of made me realize the necessity for an importer to take more of that risk, an importer to say, we want to support an entire community and we'll be the ones that take that hit that say, now our work is making sure that we explain to roasters why they should be buying from these people, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those big things that we think about differently with importing. Importing for us is not just this coffee's so good, you should buy it. We don't play on the, on the field of send out samples, and then they win because the other 80 samples they got cupped with, it was the best coffee ever. We know that quality can compete for us, but we want people to meet us on, a, on like an actual human level first, right? right? We have to start with humans, and then we get to coffee quality. And that's how we work with everything. We work with the people first, and the quality comes second. And yeah, that can take some time. But at the end of the day, the benefit is so huge to everybody. Everybody involved wins.
0: I think that's a really important part of the job that you just described right now is that you're not just a person who goes and sends samples to roasters and wins on the table and says like, okay, we're going to sell this coffee to you because ours was the best that you cupped of all these Guatemalan coffees or all these coffees that you're looking to fill a specific blend, roast, whatever, but that you're, you're telling people to come and take that risk with us too. Like we're taking the risk. We're buying these coffees. Now we're going to yeah. tell you about like why you should also be part of this process as well. And especially looking at what specialty coffee sells itself as specialty coffee sells itself as better, essentially, like mm-hmm. the coffee is better. We do better work. But what does that actually mean in, in context? Like, how are we actually doing any of that better work? And are we actually doing any of that better work? And I think that that's where we'll we'll get into some of the theoretical of that in a moment. But How do you have those conversations with small roasters, which I imagine that's primarily who you're working with? How do you bridge that gap with small roasters who might be risk-averse themselves, especially because there's a very capitalist way? I, I feel like I'm throwing out all these terms already, but there's a very capitalist way of looking at small business too, right? Like you open a small business and it's kind of like you have to do everything to survive and cut corners where you need to. But if you're entering the specialty coffee market there has to be some understanding that you're entering a system that's already exploitative. So how do you minimize that harm? There's a lot I said there. Maybe you can take whatever works for you in that. I
1: think I totally agree. Like, I think like specialty coffee in general, I think that like there's a whole bunch of narratives that we sit on and that we believe in that. Yes, I think there are positives that come from specialty coffee. I've seen it. It's a thing that can exist, but does it happen by default because you paid more money for coffee? No, it doesn't. It just doesn't. And so I think that that's the question where it's like, we have to be willing to have more rigor in our processes and have more willingness to investigate where we may be failing to always constantly trying to improve. And I think that the only way that we can really improve is like the line that we always have with Samia is real support requires risk. We'll never be able to do this thing without risking something, you know? And I think that, that's been sort of this weird sort of like catch 22, or if that's the word I want to use for it, I don't know, like the the word that you want to use where like, almost like a double speak in, in specialty. We always want to give the best price for the best coffee and give this sustainable lifestyle to producers that we work with. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we mitigate the risk so that we don't have any problems in our own business. And I think this is one of those things, again, that's this like, misunderstanding or maybe missed opportunity amongst like importation companies is there's this belief that roasters don't want to be bothered with more information, that they don't want anything other than high quality coffee. And if you try to give them more than high quality coffee and tell them like to get involved for other reasons that they're just going to walk away and say, no, I just don't think that that's true. I think that we have to have a lot more charity and a a lot more like a lot more bandwidth to like truly understand what we're working in and to share that information. And, and roasters will be very willing to get involved because all of us, especially, want to be involved in the better thing that we say that it is, right? We want this industry to be better and we want our work within this industry to be the way that it says that it is. But sometimes you don't have that access. You have to buy coffee because someone gave it to you. You have to, you're not going to start a small roastery and travel to six different countries and buy one bag of coffee. It's logistically impossible, right? So you have to have somebody who's willing to meet you there at a small level and say, you deserve to get involved with this. We want to share this with you, but the one thing that we ask from you is like, please consider that when you buy this coffee, that you can start considering it as a long-term investment. That if you buy this this year, we hope you're there next year. And secondarily, if you can do it, if you can find some way, we want to buy all levels of quality from communities. And so please consider finding a place in your menu where you can work from that, work that in there as well.
0: Right. There's so many reasons to do a thing. There's so many reasons to engage in anything that exists. And it feels like in coffee, specifically in third wave coffee, we have tethered ourselves so strongly to quality because it's the only way that we can imagine justifying higher prices. Which, uh-huh. again, goes to this idea that there's, you said this, I'm not, I can't take credit for it, but that capitalism operates in one way that there is one way to do all of this and it has to be tied into this idea of quality that the only way that we can justify prices is by saying that this actually tastes better but there are 800 bajillion reasons why we can do something and like you said like it can be as simple as like these are people we work with and like they deserve livelihoods (laughs) like it's that simple.
1: When you commit to understanding people as people and not as a cup score, you recognize insanely complex individuals with wildly fascinating personal histories. And like, I want to be part of their personal history. This is a way in which we can fundamentally connect with people all around the world and work in a way where we can just basically achieve large-scale wealth redistribution to communities of people who deserve it, who've worked really hard. And- Nothing that we sell is bad. That's the thing, right? We don't buy bad quality coffee, but we're layering it with like an understanding of who these people are as humans by starting there first, you know? And so I think that the biggest thing with all this stuff is like recognizing so much of the stuff that we say that we want to do in specialty doesn't start with a quality score. Yeah. Trust doesn't start with a quality score. Relationships don't start with a quality score. All of these things, sustainability doesn't start with a quality score. They start with meeting people where they are, listening to what they need, and working on a plan that is goal-oriented on how they can create a future that makes sense to them. And we just have to fill in the spaces in the middle.
0: Let's uh, zoom out a little bit because we've talked a bit about some of the bigger ideas that kind of drive your work and some of these bigger ideas that, I don't want to say poison specialty coffee, but they kind of do. But... Mm -hmm. One thing that I've never heard anybody connect to specialty coffee, to the way that we purchase coffee, is trickle-down economics, which I think would be shocking to people when they first hear that. Like, oh, could specialty coffee be essentially a a form of, like, Reaganist economic practices? But in a way, it is. And I wonder for you, how do you think about the way in which these forms of thinking have almost poisoned the way that we purchase coffee in a way that we've tricked ourselves into believing that we're doing good. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: yeah like, I think that it's really, it's really complicated because I think I've had this before too, you know, when you bring up the specter of capitalism within like being a coffee trader or coffee importer, you know, there's always someone's like, we're all capitalists. Like we live in capitalism and it's like, we do for sure. It's true. I think the thing that we try to put forward all the time is that some notion of transitional capitalism is what we're trying to think about more so. you know. And I think that like first yeah. and foremost, getting outside of capitalism is, is totally ludicrous at this point because producers need to make money for the coffee that they grow. Plain and simple. There is no other econ- economic structure that supports them, right? So we have to be involved in capitalism. The point is, how do we use that capitalism in a way that doesn't fundamentally do all the things that you said, which is this modern version of of capitalism that like we were talking about with David Harvey like neoliberal capitalism as envisioned since the 1980s with Reagan and Thatcher that has come to pervade all of the globe at this point with globalization.
0: I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to stop you there for a minute. Can you explain who David Harvey is and explain the book that you were talking about because we were talking about it before we started recording, but I want to make sure that people have that context.
1: Yeah, so David Harvey is I guess Marxist writer intellectual and he has a lot of different books that he's written but one that's really great to really that i think has tons of intersectional connection to especially coffee and coffee in general is his neoliberalism a brief introduction and in there basically he poses a lot of different things and i think what, some of the main strands that i would say that really imply especially coffee are the notion that capital itself or private funds, private actors with capital will fundamentally solve all of societal wills, societal ills. So if you get into a scenario where someone needs healthcare, that their best case scenario is that they get private healthcare from working their job that pays them well enough to get better quality private healthcare and relying on the state to do that would be inefficient or lower quality. Especially coffee obviously falls into this notion with neoliberalism in the sense that we argue basically that a higher price will resolve all of the issues that plague a smallholder producer. And I think that that is like the fundamental thing that you can see where neoliberalism is involved is this notion that capital alone will solve the problems that we just need to pay a higher price and things will be fine. I would say, and we do say that's the baseline, especially coffee should at base be paying the highest price it can possible. And that should never be the finish line. Right. Secondarily from that, I think there's, this other notion of like we talked about before with access, there's an idea that within neoliberalism that sort of like the cream rises to the top, that like the best actors, the best people who can achieve the most, something that you see a lot in like Randian writing like Fountainhead or something, right? The creative capitalist class, the people who will move society forward are the ones that deserve to make the wealth and, and are almost in a way morally better than other people in the world because they make society possible. So there's this notion in which, believing that we can pay a higher price to the most qualified people will always lead to the best result for society. In taking those together in the form of coffee, that's just like plainly not the case. Right. What we're seeing is wealth and power consolidation amongst like a tiny few who are benefiting off of the labor and lack of access and education of the smallholder class in order to further make themselves more status and power and wealth from that scenario. And our lack of critical assessment of that is very challenging.
0: Right. And it seems almost contradictory in the way that we operate in specialty coffee because so much of what we talk about is quality focused. And if we're really talking about this idea that specialty coffee finds the best quality, then... Like we're wrong. Like we're just fundamentally wrong because, again, a market access consolidation of power, consolidation of wealth like that's that's not what we're doing at all. And yet we've seemed to have created this narrative around specialty coffee that because we're paying the highest prices and we're getting the highest quality coffees, therefore A plus B equals C, we're doing something better.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. And I think that that is also like we said before, it's that way in which like we have gotten so immersed in, again, what David Harvey says, this notion that neoliberal capitalism, what did it want to achieve? It wanted to achieve the notion that this is the only capitalism that exists, right? Neoliberal capitalism being much better described probably by Ted in your other episode is fundamentally this notion that like the individual is the only thing that matters and the state or any collective organism that would benefit and support the individual is just a burden. And so none of those things should be involved. It's really just dog eat dog, every man for himself kind of take And that like the market will sort everything out one way or another. The problem that was not considered within that scenario when they were conceiving of that is it was an answer to, you know, the specter of socialism and communism, this belief that bureaucratic socialism and communism would be fundamentally rife with corruption, which would lead this system to not be egalitarian at all. But in neoliberal capitalism, what has happened, corruption is is everywhere. And especially right. when you're talking about the global South, how do you expect a system like that to not feed the most, the actors who may or be the least well-intentioned, right? And attaching that to quality, quality becomes one of those things where it's like, if quality is the line where we, where we like hit and we're like, that's what we need and I don't need to know more information, quality is, you can make a direct line in coffee between quality and money, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why? Not even just because with more money, do you make more quality coffee? It's not just that, but you can just take more risk. With a small producer, a small holder, they produce coffee. They, every single lot that comes out, they want to like sell t- the max amount of money so they can pay their bills and they can feed their families and they can grow their farm. They can pay their workers. All that kind of stuff is vital. Every lot needs to be a slam dunk. It needs to be a win, right? There is no margin for failure. There is no risk management strategy. When you're dealing with people who are more empowered by this structure, quality then therefore relies on people being able to have deep pockets to survive. And that's the thing that I'm honestly very worried about is consolidation is the biggest thing that worries me in specialty coffee now, not just in terms of production either. I think that we're seeing the same effort for people like us as importers. We're an independent importer. We don't take money from multinational companies. We don't use multinational companies to move our coffee. We, we, found ways to get money for ourselves that we pay, We have our own names on so that we can buy coffee and support people. But more and more, multinational companies are operating in the specialty coffee realm and consuming independent companies, right? Because they have the ability to do so. And it's the same thing on the production side. You get more and more of this instability where you get a consolidation of wealth that's going to change the whole very nature of who's able to participate in that scheme and that terrifies me. It basically is like the Amazonification of coffee. Yeah. That more and more we're going to end up with major corporate interests that run everything, right?
0: I I I feel like so I wrote an article a couple of months ago about the consolidation of coffee from 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 the the consumption end of mostly roasters being consolidated. And one of the the kind of pushbacks I got was this idea that like not all consolidation is bad and I wanted to counter it. I I generally don't engage in comments on on my newsletter, especially if I think they're in bad faith. But one of the arguments I wanted to make is that I'm not basing this on theory. I'm basing this on evidence. Like it's not that I'm proposing a theory that this could happen. I'm just looking at what the evidence has provided me. I've seen what Amazon has done. I've seen what like Kroger has done, the consolidation of grocery stores. Like if people yeah. didn't continue to prove that the consolidation of power is 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 bad then like we wouldn't even be having this conversation but i think you're absolutely yeah. right to identify this as something that like we should maybe be fearful of and again it's not to say that the consolidation of power itself is necessarily bad but that history has told us over and over and over and over that the consolidation of power is bad
1: well and if we go back to just the basis of what do we do in our in our work or to me we listen right and when i listen to small producers and i ask them what does this make you think and they say that's awful, that scares me. That's the death of my livelihood. Then it's a no, you know that's just not a no. that's just not okay for us, you know So there's a reason why when we were just in Colombia 10 10, 15 days ago and we were in the final reunion with all the producers we work with, it was like almost 100 people that were there. And Augusto Ortega, who is like a, a producer that we've been working with forever, who's a smallholder who's been fighting to develop proper market access for his family since all, over 40 years basically now and is just like an actual legend of a coffee producer who's respected deeply in his community. And he stood up and said that the work that we're doing there between Moncaba, the producer association we're there and Samia is revolution Pacifica, a peaceful revolution, because that's still the state that we live in, right? We still have to be in this world where like smallholders and hopefully allied and like supportive buyers recognize that we need to be waging a revolution and pushing back against the way that the world works right now in coffee. Because this thing does not want to bank space for the people who hold it up. When the smallholder class holds up all of coffee production in the world, like 80% of all the world's coffee is smallholders. And so what are we doing when we move towards consolidation? You're guaranteed disenfranchising all of these people. And for what? So you can get a higher quality score and so that someone already wealthy can make more money so that like major private investment companies can invest in wet mills and like buy huge tracts of land so that you can have a more vertically integrated coffee so that you get quality at a lower price. Like if that's the trend that we're going towards, then all of this thing is like a great example of the efficiency of neoliberal capitalism, but also the terror of it, right? Mm-hmm. That really what it just pushes us further and further towards is never towards, you know, understanding human experience, understanding human reality. It's about bottom line.
0: Mm-hmm. I think... The only way that I see pushback on this, and not to say that I think this is warranted, I'm just trying to like see it from the other end of a small roaster. And I think again, this is kind of where capitalism has spoiled our brains in a way, is that with small roasters, so much of like how we structure the idea of small businesses, like we we glorify small businesses, and not to say that they're mm. they're they're deserving or not, whatever. But this idea of like everything at everything everything to serve the business like everything for you to like you said like you maybe you do business kind of badly if if you were kind of like doing it from like the nuts and bolts way that we understand how businesses should operate but like how do you get roasters to that level
1: i mean i think that we're really like again really lucky because i don't actually think i have too many people push back on that i think that like maybe it's you know we largely i think that for sure. There's probably people who just like don't even engage with us. There's a lot of people that just don't even engage with us because they just, the coffee's too expensive and like this whole thing that they're doing is like, it's just too much for me. I don't want any of that stuff. There's a lot of people that just want to like, they want to roast coffee and like live their life. I don't hold anybody to some standard and say that you're evil. You know, I don't think that anybody, especially in like a micro roasting context, right. context is is the problem. You know what I mean? I just think that you need better resources. We all need better resources to do the things that we say we want to do and to achieve them the way that we want to, you know? And I think most of us, but people in specialty who are roasters, like that we work with at least, when we have these same conversations, they agree. They're like, this is terrible. Like, I don't want that. But no one's telling them this information. And so that's the thing that we have to remember, right? Is that like, Samia for us has always been like a verification and like fact finding mission. Yeah. How do we find the truth and then share that with people? And like you said, it's not about, it's not about theories and it's not about shade, It's about, this is the truth. This is how things are working right now. How do we fix that? How do we make that not that way? How do we not engage in that? That's all we're trying to do, you know? And I think once you make that clear to people that like, we're hoping to propose a solution and the plus side is this coffee is amazing and the people you're buying from are awesome, then it's pretty kind of a no-brainer, you know? Bigger buyers. I think the people I run into more is like, there's a fair amount of people in like, you know, They're probably more like my peers, quote unquote, who run importation businesses that would probably think that like what we do is just insanely risky and stupid, you know, like sending a bunch of money for anticipation payments to Guatemala like we do every year without any sample, any sample verification and without any like worry that they're going to deliver the coffee like people don't do that, you know, like some people do, but most don't most just think you're stupid and that you're, you're getting into a scenario that is just too risky.
0: But that assumes but that assumes that like the end all be all is the business. And I think that that's an interesting way to frame it is that like the end all be all is for you to like be able to do business and make money, but that isn't the end all be all. That's the whole point.
1: No, and I think that like fundamentally the hilarious thing about that is that like how does your business exist? Sure, sure. Your business because <laughs> you have coffee producers who trust you, you know? So it's like this insane ability for us to like get so narrowly focused on things like cup score and bag count and uh, those kind of things and not thinking about the fact that like like I said at the beginning, there's a human being that produced your coffee who wants more than anything like we say with everything is that the craziest part about doing specialty coffee at this point for me is not about whether or not people want to pay more money or anything like that. It's about how there's still this huge lack of just pure respect for the people who make this all possible.
0: Is there anything you want people to know about samia before we close this conversation out
1: i don't know i feel like i left so much on the table i didn't say i feel like i didn't say most of everything but i
0: mean it's impossible to
1: i hope that we capture this captures some of the essence of what samia is trying to do i think that like samia is trying to make like new realities, you know? And we're trying to do those together with people. We're not trying to do those by ourselves and we're not trying to be saviors or heroes. We're trying to just listen and follow and out of respect, build things that leave smallholder producers, specifically smallholder producers, in a better place than they've ever been before. And that doesn't just mean in terms of the money that's in their pockets, it means the information about their product, connection to their community, understanding of the specialty market and hopefully tools and ability to operate in that market independently and autonomously. That's that's what we're trying to get to.
0: Brendan, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. This has been so revealing and I'm going to be buzzing off this conversation for a while. That was Brendan Adams, founder of Samia Coffee. Coffee importing company based in Canada, which you can learn more about by visiting their website Samia, S E M I L L A dot C A, or I highly recommend following them on Instagram, which you can do at Samia Coffee. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez you can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund. We pay for website hosting and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be great amazing. We're at boss barista podcast on Instagram and boss underscore barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at boss at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.